Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Mic Drop. Thanks again for joining us this Wednesday, 5 o'clock Pacific Time, 8 o'clock Eastern. We're going to be talking about last night's primary election results, some of the data, some of the findings, what happened in New York, what happened in Florida, what happened in Alaska, or what is happening in Alaska, right? Um, and I'm also going to be doing a little bit of diatribe. <laughs> if you were on Twitter recently, I, I, I got I to use this kind of point of personal privilege, if I could, just to talk a little bit about um, this college loan thing. And um, talk about the political ramifications. I may delve into policy a little bit, but uh, this is this is a pretty extraordinary thing, an extraordinary moment. Maybe upsetting to some of you, but as you all know, I, I that's fine by me. Um, I don't in, enjoy um, upsetting people, but I do want us to challenge ourselves to look at things for what they are, uh, myself included. Um, so when you've got those questions and you've got those issues, by, please bring them up. Um, I'm hearing getting some feedback that my mic is breaking up. My apologies. So let me try to find a better spot here. Um, but I, I do, I do believe this is probably the silliest, the silliest uh, debate I've seen on Twitter, as I tweeted out, and that is saying a lot. Um, so do me a favor before we get jumping here. If you could also share with folks on social media on Twitter that this conversation is happening, it would mean a lot to me. It's when we get the most robust conversations, uh, kicks it up obviously a little bit in the algorithms too, and kind of builds a following and helps us both get better. Um, topics, uh, better speakers, and um, better ratings. I think you all know how this works by now. Jump into the queue on the lower right-hand um, side um, to ask questions and jump on up. Um, we'll take them in order as they come, and hopefully there's a lot of questions. So before we get into the primary results, I do have to say um, I put out a tweet earlier today that suggested, I know, gasp, I suggested that what Joe Biden did today with the college loan forgiveness of $10,000 was <gasps> political. I know, I know, shocking, shocking. Um, but let me explain why. Um, the first is um, we can get into the merits of the policy, um, I, 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 I personally, like I said, I'm not a policy expert. I've worked on policy. I've worked on higher education policy, by the way, as an appointee of the governors on the board of edu uh, board of of governors for for the uh, California Community College System, the largest system of higher education in the world. So I, I know a little bit about costs of college. I know about the stress that students go into. I went into pretty significant debt myself. Um, and I borrowed uh, my kids' ways through college. I didn't want to put them under that debt, so I took it on twice in my lifetime, four times, considering I've got three kids. Um, and, and I've got no problem with eliminating debt. I, I really don't. Um, I think it's actually a good idea. And as somebody shared, we, the real goal here should be free college education, which we have figured out in California, by the way. It's not hard to do, and I'm a supporter of it. Having a community college system here in California literally changed my life. My career was going to be as a Domino's pizza driver. Uh, honestly, this is true. I graduated from high school with a 2.1 GPA. I barely graduated from high school. I was a bright kid, kind of lost in the system. Not uncommon. You've all heard the stories. The California community college system gave me a fighting chance to kind of get back uh, into school. And I think I've, I've done pretty well with that. I've made made a little bit of something of myself. 
Um, but it, none of that would have been possible without a, a community college system. So there, there is nobody, there is nobody, I see no ground to anybody on me pursuing and believing and advocating and fighting for the value of a free college education, higher education. So let me just set that as the bar, okay? But, 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 and this is a big caveat. This was in the same way that Donald Trump gives tax breaks to his base and to his buddies and everybody goes crazy about it as they perhaps rightfully should. That is exactly what this was. Exactly what this was. This benefits people who literally meet the precise demographic that is the strongest base of the Democratic Party. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're going to lose your head over that and start coming at me and attacking me for saying that, well, that's on you. I don't, I'm, I'm sorry. That's, just, that's about you. That's not about me. Okay? It's a fact. It's true. Does it have good policy aims and goals? Maybe. I could think of way better ways to give $10,000 to a group of people that would actually impact their lives better. Like, I don't know, poor people, maybe people without a college degree. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if we're just giving out money, let's actually do something that is going to have an even greater impact on their lives. I mean, why not? Why not? So uh, uh, my, my point here is to make out the, the, the very clear delineation that there's a reason why Joe Biden did this, the White House did this, and it was for a smart political calculation. Is it going to work? I don't know. But this was not the best policy decision if you're trying to impact people's lives with people that could use that $10,000 the most. I will stand all the way on, on this ground until the very bitter end and say that, Okay. And, and I don't even want to get into that. That's really not the point. That's, that's even me getting off topic. That's why this debate got so damn dumb in the first place. The most important point about all of what I am trying to suggest and what I'm trying to say is that Joe Biden has a very serious weakness with young people, with young voters. I don't know that they don't like him. I'm not going to say that. But what I am going to say is that there's a, 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 a at best an ambivalence about him. And if you look at all of the consolidation that has happened in the past six weeks, all of the movement, the consolidation of the base that is bringing the Democrats back from the dead, it is because weak Democratic constituencies are coming back into the fold of the party. Now, as you've heard me say time and time again, that's largely a construct of the Dobbs decision. That, that's largely a function of, of the overturning of Roe Wade. That was when the earthquake was felt. That was, that was when it really happened, okay? Um, and, 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 and all of the polling has not been the same since. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, too, because, boy... There were some bad numbers. If you look at the Molinari race last night in New York, most of these had the Republican winning um, by seven to eight points. Anywhere between five and nine points. Most of them were sitting in a seven to eight point range. Okay? 
what happens? The votes are tallied. The votes are counted. The Democrat wins in a plus four, plus five position. That's a pretty significant shift. Okay, so let me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. So I'm gonna go right back to this race, but I, I do want to end on the, the the Biden thing. I'm just. It's just. It's. I, it's one of those weird debates where it's like people are are going to the mattresses, dying to defend this when it's so clearly, obviously designed for political purposes, not for good public policy. That doesn't make it bad, people. It doesn't make it bad. That's the way politics works. It's the way Republicans do it. Both sides do it. But let's not pretend it's anything else. All right? Let's just not pretend it. Let's not insult each other's intelligence. Let's tip our cap and say, hey, that's a pretty good move. 70 days out of the election, when you need to inspire uh, young voters to go to the polls for the Democrats in a way that can save democracy. I'm for that. I'm all about that. I'm not going to debate the policy issues, but for the love of God, don't insult my intelligence and act like it's, it's, this is like some great policy achievement. No, this is a pure political move, and I think it was a good one. Will it actually matter at the polls? Maybe, maybe not. Is it worth rolling the dice? Absolutely it is. Nothing, I don't think, is going to get young people, women especially, motivated the way the overturning of Roe did. But at least they're doing something good politically. Again, I'm tipping my cap to them. I'm not being critical. Okay? So with that, let's segue into what happens last night in New York specifically with this race, New York 19. A couple things about the 19th District in New York. This is suburbia. This is a bellwether. Okay? This is not a deep MAGA, ruby red rural district. This is not a, a uh, metropolitan, deep blue area. This isn't a, a district that leans 20 points R or 20 points D, the way we saw in other specials in Nebraska, uh, where you know what we're really looking for is the margin. Um, and what we saw was a significant Democratic overperformance. And what that means is, when the pollsters are looking at modeling what the likely outcome of a race is going to be when they're out there in the field, as we say, when they're out there calling people, they're basically guessing at what turnout's going to be based off of the historical trend. If you've got enough data points, you can make a pretty good educated guess. Is it perfect? No, not perfect. We all know that polls are not perfect. It's why we are starting to take polls of polls and try to get an assessment by bringing in more and more data points. The more data points you bring in, quality data points, by the way, the better your predictive, uh, the, the better your predictions are going to be. It's just commonsensical. Here we've got a little bit of a weird situation. Okay, when you're trying to predict a midterm turnout or a special election in a midterm turnout. There's not a lot of data points to look back at historically to give you a good read on how many people are going to actually show up. And that is the most difficult part of polling. It's not interviewing. It's not getting the questions to, to, to get people on landlines or cell phones. That is getting harder, by the way, but not nearly as hard as waiting and the balancing of which people are actually going to show up. It's not drawing the questions. It's not figuring out what the questions are going to be or does this question bias that one? Does, does this answer potentially bias the rest of the question set? Those are all the things that we spend hours and hours and hours on, but that's not the hardest part of the poll. That's not the hardest part of the poll. The hardest part is trying to figure out what the right percentages of each demographic are going to be and what we historically have known for the past 
40 years is that Democrats have a less likelihood of showing up to vote under basically any circumstance except for the Super Bowl of elections, which is a presidential general election. That's when everybody and their mother and their brother and their mother's brother's sister shows up to vote. Okay, that's the high watermark. 2020, the election we just all had as a country, highest election turnout in history. Okay, those are the big ones. The lowest turnout elections are primaries in a midterm. That's when far, far, far fewer people are listening. And now you throw in a special election in the middle of a midterm primary, and that gets real tough. Because you can't look back as a pollster and go, oh, Here's an apples-to-apples comparison of the last five, six, seven, eight election cycles, and these are the percentages that all these groups showed up in, and that's what gives us those outcomes. Now, that's not what you do. You basically are taking a guess. You do your best and then get ready for all the criticism that's going to come and everybody telling you you don't know what you're doing and you're fake news because no one can get this 100% right. And that's essentially what not only happened in this special But it's why I think there is, at least at this moment, and I'll explain why it's just at this moment, why there is an undercalculation of women specifically, Democrats generally, and also young people in our polling. Okay, And when I say our, I mean all the public-facing polling that we're seeing. As you all know, we've been seeing this shift towards the Democrats over the course of of the past six, eight weeks now, ever since the Dobbs decision, okay? The, when you're polling, even these public polls, when you are trying to get your polling to be as accurate as possible, imagine being in a position where you have to predict what the weighting is going to be, like the balance of all of these voters are going to be, and then a political earthquake hits six, eight, nine weeks before an election, and you have to j- to literally guess at how big that is going to be. Do I add more women? Sure, but how many? 1%, 5%, 8%, 3%? Because any 1% or 2% off in your waiting is going to have very significant impacts on the outcome of what it is that you're trying to accomplish, which is predict the outcome of a race, Okay. This, by the way, is why I caution so much against the horse race polls. Anybody who follows me knows I don't like the horse race polls because they're not really telling me a whole lot about the race. When you're looking at a public-facing poll that is trying to predict the outcome of a race, it does not account for all of the variables that are driving that race. And this is an example of that. I don't mean to say that they're worthless. They're not worthless. But when we're polling on campaigns, we ask that question, would you vote for Tom Jones or Sally Smith? And if Sally Smith is ahead by five points, okay, that's interesting. Now let's get into the stuff in the poll that really matters. What is opinion issue at the top of their mind, at the top of their concerns? And then what is the movement from the last survey that we conducted? And you're going to always hear me coming back to movement, 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 because that is what a campaign professional is looking for, which voters are changing their voting behavior. In this case, the significant movement continues to be with women. The question is how much 
and can that create a blue wave, a blue wave scenario? Okay, because that's what everybody's looking at. Incidentally, and I'm going to have to visit on this probably at another time, but, but we have to start asking ourselves, what does a wave mean, right? Like, is that five seats? 40, I, what is it? What constitutes a wave? What constitutes a trickle, right? What constitutes a, 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 uh, an election like 2020 where the Democrat wins at the top of the ticket in the presidency, but the Republicans pick up uh, seats in the House? Like, is that a wave election? I don't know, right? So we've got to be careful with this vernacular too. That's not a term that we use in campaigns. What we do look at or at least historically, we have looked at the top of the ticket and the approval ratings um, to see if there were going to be any any coattail effects. And I think I dispelled that notion the last time uh, last week when I was on with Lucas by saying we really don't we don't really use coattails as a metric anymore. And what's happening with Joe Biden is a good reason as to why we don't. But again, Madrid's getting off topic a little bit. Let me bring this <clears throat> let me bring this back to women voters and gauging how many how much overperformance there's going to be. Now, because there is no history of an election uh, uh, dynamic like uh, Dobbs, like the overturning of Roe Wade, a lot of these pollsters are guessing, and they guessed wrong. They guessed inaccurately in the Molinari race. They were all predicting the Republican would win between five and nine points. The Democrats win by four. This is not terribly dissimilar to the phenomenon that we saw when Trump was overperforming in 2016 and 2020 with non-college educated rural whites. Remember the criticism? Everybody said the polling was wrong. A lot of the Trump people were saying the polling's wrong. You're not accurately reflecting uh, the, the electorate and the enthusiasm gaps. They were right. They were right. The pollsters were doing their best, but they had never seen a phenomenon like Trump either. And as these times that we're in get more partisan, get more rocky, get more radicalized, you are starting to see different segments of the electorate respond differently. And predicting that is it's virtually impossible to do it with accuracy. And it's again why I caution of looking at horse racing polls, really look for movement, especially late movement. And folks, we're seeing a ton of movement across the board right now including uh, two other points. Um, I'm not quite done with the women piece yet because it's, it's, it's structurally very important. But there was also in the New York 19 race, as was pointed out by some really astute observers on Twitter that I follow, there was a continued loss of, uh, of non-college-educated white precincts in New York 19 for the Democrats. That shift is still occurring, folks, that rightward shift with non-college educated voters is still moving to the right. At the moment, nobody is seeing it significantly because of the dramatic overperformance with women. It's much bigger. It's much more significant. And as a result, that's kind of the news that we're looking at um, today. Uh, so, but, but, but be mindful that that shift is still happening and it's going to be a factor, especially in house races where there are more non-college-educated voters, okay? Most of the 20 or so truly competitive seats are in suburban communities, and the reason why they're in suburban communities 
It's not because of crazy gerrymandering. It's not because of underhandedness of Republican or Democratic legislatures. The reason why they're competitive is by definition, suburbs have some more rural parts and some more urban parts. And it's easy to discern by zip code what the color, either red or blue or the partisan makeup of those districts are and tend to be. The other reason why they're also viewed as competitively have a higher number of college-educated voters, and that swing demographic tends to show the most movement. It tends to move to the right in races like Glenn Youngkin responding to critical race theory and <laughs> whatever was the dynamics of those races. Remember way back when, a few months ago, when that was the hot topic and that was the issue and that was what we were all worried about and that was going to determine the outcome of the, of the midterms and that's why the Republicans were going to win 60 seats or 70 seats, right? There's all this paranoia and panic. And then now you see it shifting back. Last night you see it shift in Kansas. You see it shift in these other races. All of these seats now start to move back into a stronger Democratic position because these college-educated voters in these districts that are more uh, um, uh, suburban starts to move back into, into these positions where uh, the Democrats' position is more significantly enhanced. Now, the reason why New York 19 is so interesting is because it is a bellwether district. It actually leans a little bit more R than I would normally see as competitive, so that's even better for the Democrats, I would suggest, especially in a special election. Because Democrats are just harder to get to the polls. The demographics of Democrats tend to be harder to get to the polls. They tend to be younger voters, and young voters are hard to get to the polls. They tend to be um, on the lower rungs of the economic ladder. And they tend to be more minority. All three of those are demographics with a strong propensity to have lower levels of turnout. But New York 19 moved from everybody predicting it, the Republicans going to win by seven to Ryan, the Democrat, winning by five. I think it's five. It's four and a half or five. Somebody can correct me. Put those numbers in there. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a significant miscalculation by the polls, uh, pollsters and why they're guessing. So it's also similar. What we are also seeing, we're calling it overperformance. What overperformance means is there are more Democrats showing up than the similar trend line of similar races would suggest turnout would be, okay? When a demographic does higher numbers, that's an overperformance. When it's lower, it's underperformance. We are seeing consistent overperformance for the Democrats in every special election that has been held since the Dobbs decision. That is a very, very significant data point, especially for Democrats. It is a huge sign of voter enthusiasm. Okay, it's huge. So with that in mind, it's important when you're looking at other suburban districts, and here's why, like I, I have said, I don't put as much value in the generic ballot in a midterm election as I do in a presidential race. And the reason for that is the House districts are much more important to look at and to gauge polling in most of those districts than gathering what the generic opinion is of Democrats or Republicans in states like California or Texas or Maine or Vermont or whatever the waiting is to get you a national representative sample.
Now, it's true most competitive races in most House districts look relatively similar to the most, com- uh, you know, to, uh, a competitive House district in a suburban region is probably a pretty good microcosm of the country's electorate as opposed to a ruby red rural part of Texas or a deep blue place in San Francisco. Those are, of course, extremes. Those suburbs are going to be somewhat more representative. And I don't want to dismiss entirely the value of the generic ballot, but again, mainly because it's showing momentum and it's showing shifting between Democrats and Republicans. And oh boy, have we seen a lot of movements and shifting in this election cycle. In fact, I would suggest it's probably more movement in any midterm election that I have seen since probably 1994 when movement moved decidedly, decidedly towards Republicans. Uh, 2010 might have been similar, okay? But a big factor in, in 1994 and 2010 was record low turnout, okay? A record low turnout in most of my adult career has benefited the Republican Party because, as I said earlier, it's hard to get Democrats to show up and vote. That is changing, by the way. And you're not hearing it, a lot of people talking about this, but they should. In fact, I'll probably call a couple reporters and give them this little nugget. But 2018, we had the highest midterm turnout in recent memory, probably in the last 30 or 40 years. We have to go back pretty deep into like, uh, you know, maybe not black and white TV, but like rabbit ears color TV to get an era and a time the last time we saw turnout uh, at that level. Okay, that was a midterms. 2020, we see the highest level of turnout in American history, highest number of Americans vote. But here's what we also saw. Remember, remember the Ossoff congressional special that he lost? This is for real political junkies going back to, to what was it, 20, 2017, 2016, maybe not 16, 2017, that special. Um, when Ossoff ran for Congress and loses, doesn't not running for Senate yet, he's running for Congress and he loses, record high turnout. Ever since that special, all of the special elections, I think virtually unanimously, but if not, it's like 90% plus, have had very robust turnouts. When you look at the off-term elections in Virginia and New Jersey that we were talking about earlier, pretty good turnout, higher than the, the, the mean of what those races normally produce, okay? That's important because this era, this time that we live in, people may not like politics, but they are keenly aware that the importance of showing up is having an impact and effect on their lives, and we are seeing higher turnout levels. Now, that normally, normally benefits Democrats. It did not, as you will notice, in 2020. When something very anomalous happened, again, highest voter turnout in the history of the country actually benefits the Republicans down ticket. What we're also seeing is that higher turnout levels mean more discerning voters. It's not just the sharp partisans that have been defining these campaigns for the better part of, well, since the mid-1990s, when it got really acerbic and really sharply partisan. Okay? So... Important things to look at when you're looking for a quote-unquote wave election or whatever that means. Um, 
turnout and mobilization from key Democratic constituencies. Check, check, and check. You're seeing women incredibly engaged. The registration numbers, if you've seen some of those numbers, are like ridiculous off the charts. They may not sound huge, but like a plus five registration numbers in some of these states, a plus seven numbers of, of women registrants that are matching Democratic turnout is, is an indicator that is not only significant, I'm going to say it's unprecedented, at least in my lifetime. I've never seen that happen before. So something big is, is, has already happened, and it's not, it's not letting up, right? It wasn't just this big Kansas shaker uh, on the Kansas vote. You're starting to see really significant movement, not just in the polls, which we saw, the polls being wrong, but in actual vote totals. It's actually making a difference at the election six, eight weeks out. Will that be sustainable going into the next 70 days? My guess is, yes, it will. But I'm also confident that there's going to be some of the variables that we have not seen come into play. Could be Trump getting indicted. Could be um, for, foreign policy issues. Could be, it could, could, could be a whole host of things. Okay? So, again, first thing I'm looking for is, are there new voters coming into the system and is the base currently energized? Short answer is yes. It gets better, I think, for the Democrats when I look at youth voters. Um, and as much as I think that today was about political silliness, the college loan thing, um, that's part of what they, he should be doing right now to win elections. It's it's a it's a crass political tool, but damn, it's the right time and the smart thing to do for political purposes. So so he's done it. Okay, I think that that has probably some net gain. It's not a bad thing. I don't think it's going to hurt him with young voters. I think voters are more supercharged, however, by the Roe decision than they are by um, by the college loan forgiveness. But it is something that directly impacts people's lives. I'm getting people um, clearly DMing and. And texting and saying, Mike, you're, you're wrong about this. This is good public policy. And I'm saying, how can I be wrong if I don't have a judgment call on it? I, I'm not saying it's good or bad public policy. I, 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 I don't know that it is good. I haven't seen a really good argument for it. I don't particularly care. I'm focused on the politics of it. That's really what I'm looking for. And I'm going to say this is a B, maybe even a B plus, to add more momentum into the column for the Democrats. Um, the, on the downside, what I'm looking at is this continued erosion. Again, we saw it in New York 19. We saw it in some other races of voters moving toward, non-college educated voters moving towards the Republican Party against the Democrats. Another really fascinating finding is Trump is continuing to do well in primary selections. Okay? And let me talk about this a little bit. And jump, jump into the queue, by the way, guys, if you're interested in asking some questions related to this or other things. I believe that we're in a period right now where as the Republican Party turns into this fierce little fiery explosive ball and starts to burn itself from within, that it will become more Trumpy. I've been saying this for, for some time, but it, at the same time, it is becoming more intense and more radicalized pro-Trump. It is alienating and pushing away key independent voters that it needs to become a viable party in both the short and long term, especially in the short, medium and all, 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 short, medium and long term. 
Okay, This is not a good development for the Republican Party. There's only so energized that you can get your voters. At some point, you have to manufacture new voters or you have to uh, uh, persuade voters. But the Republican Party is not interested in manufacturing new voters. They're turning off young people from registering. They're not interested in persuading new voters. They're interested in taking their own voters into hyperdrive. And then now, of course, saying if we didn't lose, then we'll, we're going to lie and, and say you guys stole the election and try to upend elections that way, right? It's not behaving like a traditional party. But th- this is actually, it, while it's a scary development, I think it can be a good development. You have to be really careful with it, though, because it's playing with gas. It's playing with fire. Um, Trump is going to continue to be a dominant force in, in primaries. There is a discernible lane that wants to leave Trump. I have always said it's about 20%. I, I did not think Liz Cheney's outcomes were bad um, at all. I think on a nationalized race, if she's getting 29% and most of these Trump candidates are just winning with 50 percent or 51 or 52 percent over non-Trump endorsed candidates. That's a good sign that shows division in the party. It's still consolidating overwhelmingly, but not by enough, not by enough that we remember in the Bannon line, we were getting, we just needed to get five, seven percent of these voters. I think it's double or triple that. Perhaps most importantly, the independent break is moving decidedly against Republicans and will continue to do so if marginally the crazier and nuttier these folks get. So that's another positive. And remember, I was saying this since, since January on politicology and, and uh, the whole time on, on mic drop here, I have been saying negative partisanship is going to determine this. The reason you don't talk about inflation, the reason you don't talk about the economy for the Democrats is because they are very strong weaknesses for the Democrats. The re- where you need to really focus and where you need to really engage on is the areas that you can actually win on. The abortion issue is front row and center. Gun control in Uvalde is a second. Continue to hammer, hammer, hammer on January 6th. And now, of course, there's another arrow in the quiver with the college loan issue, which should fire up a part of the Democrats' constituency. So all of that's to say the negative partisanship framework that is developing is looking like the voters are responding to the extremism of the Republican Party in a positive way if you are a Democrat. The traditional um, historical tendency to vote against the most extreme party that has been evident since 1994 continues to look more and more every day. Like it's the Republicans who are out of step. Um, the, um, and so, so that's another, so that's another data point to look at when you're starting to add up what, um, what's good for the Democrats. So, um, I'm not going to suggest that this is a blue wave because I, having said all of that, having said all of that, if I had to bet, Bet 100 bucks on which way it's going to go. I am still at this point of the belief that it will be a Republican pickup of probably between 5 and 10 seats. That's way different than the 20-plus that I was thinking it was going to be six to eight weeks ago. And it's getting to the point where, especially as the price of gas comes down and inflation begins to at least 
feels like it's receding a little bit or we're normalizing into it, it would appear that we are um, heading into a position where at some point in the next 70 days, this could just be a coin toss. Incidentally, Biden's numbers are starting to come back up. They're still really, really low. And I'm not a big believer that they're correlate to the performance of the party in power. But that it's it's tied to right track and wrong direction. The the better people feel about the president generally is the way that they're going to feel about the direction of the country. So with that, I'm going to take some questions, beginning with my dear friend Stephanie McGann. Stephanie, <laughs> how are you doing? I'm fine, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. This is such a great topic, and I actually do have a legitimate question for you based on your years and politics, your expertise, and sort of voter behavior. Mike, do you see, or would you predict or guess, if you will, that we know that Roe is not only an issue for Democrat women, but indeed for Republican women, meaning mm-hmm. that they overwhelmingly support the right to, um, to, to choose. Yeah. Do you think that this will motivate Republican women to do one of two things? Maybe there's more options, but I'll just start with this. Do you think it motivates them to vote Democrat, or do you think it motivates them to not vote in Gosh, particular races? Such a great question. Um, the, the, the truth is you take either, right? But the, the preference is to have them vote Democrat because of that two-vote swing that I explained last week. And this was the real strategic calculation we had to make at the Lincoln Project. Do you try to convince Republicans to vote for a Democrat or just not vote? Um, look, I, I am a big believer that what is likely to happen with the intensity that I am seeing, that a lot of Republican women are going to vote for Democrats. I think a lot of women who did not like Trump and did not vote for him in 2016 and did not vote for him in 2020, but voted for Republican members in the House, I think this is another brick in the wall where they're saying, you know what? Bullshit. I'm, we're, this is send a message time. And they're probably convincing themselves this is the only time I'm going to do it, but I'm going to send a damn message. And, and this, is, this is too far. It's real now. It's not abstract. And incidentally, we're starting to see, I don't know if you saw that big California poll came out today on the abortion question, because here in California, we have um, um, Proposition 1. And Proposition 1 is, is basically, it's, it's, a, it's a question of, of choice um, and, and whether or not we're going to enshrine it in our constitution. And everybody says, okay, well, it's California, who cares? But the numbers, the polling came out at like 78, yes. Um, and you know, 22 or 2020, 20, no, or something with a few undecided. I mean, like crazy, crazy town numbers. And so to get there, Stephanie, you have to get Republican women moving over. But what we also saw, if you look at the cross tabs, something like a third of people who identified as strong conservatives said that they were going to vote for. Uh, the measure to protect and enshrine a pro-choice position in the state's constitution. So there's some serious hemorrhaging in the Republican coalition on this issue. We saw it in Kansas. We saw it, uh, um, you know, we, we are seeing this in, in terms of turnout, um, in New York 19, we saw it in the Nebraska special election. Um, the demographics is what I'm looking at. You can't get to those numbers in any meaningful way, unless you are, seriously shifting positions deep into the Republican base. And like I said, even if you're getting a five, six, seven point swing amongst Republican women, um, 
that's very, very significant. Incidentally, I think there's probably a ton of men that are moving on this too. Yeah, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate that. Thanks for the great question, Stephanie. Thanks for joining us tonight. Renee, we're going to have you pop up on stage. Regular caller. Got to unmute down there. Renee, we are desperately waiting. There you are. Welcome to the show. Hey, how are you, Mike? Great. How are you today? I'm good. Um, I have a multi-part question. Well, a two-part question for you. Um, Based on some of the things that we've discussed over the past few weeks as far as, like, reactions to extremism and things like that, um, I was looking at, you know, the New York races and both at New York and in Florida with – Carl Palladino and Laura Loomer both like going a little nutso. Yeah. And on the right, and you know, the rejection of those, as well as, you know, it, I, it also kind of piqued my interest if you're looking at Nikki Freeze and with, you know, uh, in a Democratic primary for governor uh, mm-hmm. with Christ, um, where she didn't even pull her own county. Yeah. Um, and if you look at her platform, her platform was pretty reasonable. Um, but also on the progressive side. So uh, it seems to me that, you know, both sides are kind of saying, nope, we're not going to these fringe edges um, on either the left or the right. But, you know, I was anxious to get your point of view on that. I think that's a good question. I I will. And it's an interesting way to look at it. I I mean, in my mind, the Republican Party has kind of already gone off the deep end. So if we're if we're like looking at a a, um, remember, Don, what's his name? Who is the candidate that she she uh, Daniel Webster is the candidate that that Loomer was running against. Daniel Webster was trying to make a run at Paul Ryan for the speakership as one of the leaders of the Freedom Caucus. Like he was the standard for nutbag, crazy wackadoodle 10 years ago now he's getting primaried by laura loomer like that's my point is like crazy town is getting crazier all the time and so in many ways the republican party has already lost its mind i have been remarkably impressed by democratic voters even in the selection of joe biden we don't need to resurrect that again but remember bernie sanders was winning going into south carolina and if there had not been a covid you know, situation, there's a good chance that Bernie would have continued that race. Democratic and, and Biden in the polling, remember in that primary, he was not the top choice of Democrats. He was not. Um, but what, what they did believe is those same polls were showing that those Democratic voters believed that Joe Biden was the best candidate to beat Donald Trump. So they swallowed hard, picked up their pencils, went down to the voting booth and voted for Joe Biden because they were voting strategically. When you look at stuff like that, when you look at stuff like the outcomes of these races, you look at states like Utah, where the Democratic uh, state party in, uh, endorses Evan McMullen to run against Mike Lee, this means that even activist Democrats are really disciplined, really strategic, really smart, and they understand the stakes of what's going on here. And they are, in many ways, setting a lot of their policy priorities aside and saying the fate of the country is more important. And i got to take my hat off to them because I've never seen that kind of behavior, especially with grassroots activists, ever on either side of the aisle. It's like the Democrats get it. All of their policy priorities are important, but when it comes down to protecting the country, they're going to side with democracy. And you gotta, it's, it's commendable. It's not just in one area, one region. It's really nationwide. Yeah, I was looking, you know, at the overall trend towards, quote, unquote, establishment Democrats in the face of all the crazy. Um, 
you know, and just wondering if that was a, a nationwide thing. And, and I guess that's kind of what you're pointing to as far as, you know, we're looking at the pragmatic, you know, standpoint yeah. is, is who can beat who. And that's really what it comes down to at this point. And I think the, um, Repub- the Republicans are clearly really struggling with that, but the Democrats seem to have figured it out. Um, my other question was is steering back to what you were saying about um, the job decision in- being impactful. Do you think um, that, you know, I know California and, and a few other places are having ballot measures on that particular issue. Mm-hmm. My question is, for the states that aren't having ballot measures, mm-hmm. will we see more Republicans voting Democrat in those areas for that purpose? Because they don't have the option to vote yes in a ballot measure. I don't think so. In fact, I think you'll, I think you'll see it less. Because that's the way voter psychology works is voters make decisions based off of the voters before them. They're usually not as um, hypothetical. So um, and most of those states will be redder states anyway, incidentally. So it's not of, um, I mean, unless you're a, a, you know, a woman living in those states, of course, it's a very serious issue. But in terms of the electoral outcomes, I don't think it's going to be that, that problematic. Um, but no, I do not see... Republicans more likely to vote for a Democrat in states without the ballot measure. I definitely see it in states with a ballot measure. Thank you. Thanks, Renee. Thanks for always being here and asking great questions. Eliana, you're next up in the queue. Um, You're up on stage. Just go ahead and unmute. Hit the microphone button. How are you? Good to hear from you again. Good, good. Um, So I've just been kind of wondering, uh, and this may be completely it's symbolic and it doesn't have an impact at all but i'm a democrat and always have been and so i always mm-hmm. try to like put myself in in um republican voters shoes on this what it must feel like from their end of this uh you know shift in coalitions and stuff and um thinking about liz cheney and the fact that she's uh been you know completely kicked out of the party do you think that there's any impact on normie not really politically obsessed Republican voters who are like, wow, they're kicking her out. Um, I see. I believe. I believe there is. I and maybe it's, maybe I'm just Pollyannish, and you know, some people yeah. are tweet, tweeting at me today because there's a poll done by Ipsos, I think, that showed that you know Cheney would get 11 with an independent, uh, and most of that vote coming away from Biden. That's. I don't think that's the right way. First of all, you could you could you could if you took Liz Cheney's name out of that and you put in you know George Jetson. You're going to have the same outcome. That's not an accurate way to test what we're talking about here. There's this real fear in American politics by people who believe they're Democrats, especially, are just afraid that a third party candidate is going to peel away from them for for some reason. I, I, I don't I don't buy that. I, don't, I just don't buy that. I don't I don't think that that that's what's happening. And I do believe that there is a weakening in the Republican base. Like all this narrative that keeps coming out is, is Trump's party. It's Trump's party. Yeah. Donald Trump is testing it like 53% and DeSantis <laughs> is at like 30. Like that's mm-hmm. not good for somebody yeah. looking to be the nominee. It's better than being at 30. Yeah. But he doesn't have a 90% grip on the party. Like everybody keeps saying again, look at the evidence. Loomer loses. Cheney gets 29%. Right. Yeah. yeah Trump back candidates are winning more than often than they're losing, but they're not clearing the field like it's yeah, not it's not unanimous. There is a fight going on in the Republican Party. If you don't believe me, ask Mitch McConnell today. 
right? Donald Trump just flamethrowing on him, basically saying a direct attack on his leadership, saying we need to get rid of Mitch McConnell. Like, if you don't think Mitch McConnell is going to fight back behind the scenes and pull all the levers that that old crow has built up over the past 50 years, he's coming. He's going to fight. There's a lot of people in the Republican Party at every level that don't want this guy back, and it's only going to get worse for him. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think maybe even if Trump is getting higher percentages of that base, the base is, you know, like you said, imploding like a hot, um, uh, Rick Wilson says it some way, like some kind of star. (laughs) Um, But yeah, just thinking that the, uh, there's like a signal, like people that don't pay attention. This has been obvious for a while that, you know, um, he's, that this is not a normal party and it's not just about Trump. It's about the party is like getting uh, Trumpified. But I'm wondering if more if with Cheney, it's such a symbolic thing to see that happen, if that like pushes people who are like not noticing it over the edge at all. To- I, I, I believe that there is a sliver. Do I think it's huge? No. Do I think yeah. it's measurable? Yes. Do I think it's consequential? Yes. Do I think that's the trend line of where this is heading? Yes, I absolutely do. Yeah. Imagine for a moment if the Democrats pull off the impossible and hold on to a majority in the House. There's going to be a complete civil war. First of all, Kevin McCarthy loses his job. He might anyways, but yeah. He might anyways. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. And, and the reasons why he w- may lose his job either way are, are, are the exact same reasons why I think you could have the Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, the, the Q caucus, as I've called them, um, <laughs> you know, exerting its power. The Freedom Caucus trying to be relevant, and then the establishment Republicans who realize that if those two take over, they're going to end up losing anyway. At the same time, Trump is going to come in and say, see, I should have ran. I could have saved you all. The grassroots will get behind them, and there could be just an incredible, incredible implosion of the Republican Party. Now, um, it's it's also possible that it coalesces. I, I, I don't know. That's not the way I see it. I think there are very significant fissures in the Republican Party, and the worse trouble Donald Trump is going to get in, the greater the likelihood that the vultures will finally have enough courage to stand up and do the right thing. Yeah, McCarthy at this point would rather have no majority than a five-crazy-person majority, but whatever. <laughs> I, I think that's probably right except knowing kevin and i was in the young republicans with kevin i mean i've known him for a long long time he has wanted to be the speaker of the house since he was you know a very young man and and when you're that close you will do basically anything to compromise yourself to grab the brass ring we'll see what he does but your point is absolutely well taken and thank you very much for the question thank you appreciate it you bet brenda we're going to bring you up next uh go ahead and unmute hi mike how are you today? Good, good. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little okay. bit. Okay. Um, if I was a Republican in one of the, you know, positions of power, say, you know, in the Republican National Committee, what would you do? What would you, what do you think they would do to counter this, the Dobbs decision that's, that's causing them so much trouble? That's a really good question. Strategically, they are now in a position, I would argue worse, than where Biden and the Democrats were at in February, March. Mm. And if anybody, if you guys listen to Politicology, Susan Del Percy and I had a really heated debate about this because I was saying the Democrats need to stop talking about inflation. They need to stop talking about the economy. They need to go find ground that they can actually win on. 
Susan disagreed with me at the time. She said that they need to come up with a policy proposal, tell voters what they're going to do. It's a legitimate beef. It's a legitimate disagreement. I think she's got one of the biggest brains in politics. But I also think I was right here. The, the, the fact that, that Dobbs came down, the fact that the Uvalde shooting happened, none of which the Democrats could have predicted and probably wouldn't prefer, the fact that the January 6th committees have been so impactful, that's what is saving the Democrats' fortunes. That's what's doing it. That may bother some people on the phone, but that's what the data shows. That's what the evidence shows. That's when the turnabout with weak Democratic constituencies coming back home. The Republicans have to do the next, the exact same thing in the next 70 days. Mm-hmm. And the problem that they have is they've got Donald Trump still dominating the airways, who's going to get in more and more and more trouble. And the more this campaign is about Donald Trump, the worse it is for the Republicans, which is why Kevin reached out to Donald Trump and told him to please, please, please not announce prior to the midterms. Because if he does, it could be that could be a blue wave. That could be a blue wave. OK, uh-huh. uh, so uh, there there is no good answer for this. When you're losing, um, when you're pissing women off so much that they're registering and voting in unprecedented numbers and you're hemorrhaging Republican women and young people are starting to show up to vote and you're losing special election seats to Congress, you should be winning by seven to nine points. You're losing by four to five points. You've got not just a message problem, you've got a framing problem, which means you need to entirely talk about something completely different because there is no fight there is no message on abortion right now that wins or helps Republicans. It does not exist. I love it. I love it. All right, <laughs> Thank Brenda. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great question. Victoria, let's jump you up on stage. Wait, we're waiting for Brenda to leave. I love her cat icon, too. Victoria, you're up. Hello. Can you hear me? How I can hear you. How are you awesome. doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thanks for my, waiting there. What can I what can I do um, for you? My question is about Liz Cheney and big donors. I okay. recently read that she's pulling quietly the big Republican donors like the Koch brothers and others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How is this going to play out? Is is she taking away a lot from the other candidates or are they going to split it or how is this going to play out? It's a great question. Uh, it's one I've been playing very close attention to, but put, pushing this out on social media a little bit too. I'm going to add a little bit to your question because it's really interesting. The fight between the Republican political consultants, that is, that is family business. You do not spill that kind of stuff into the press. Once you do that, it's an all-out street gang war, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's spilling out. And so what you have is a battle over the money. Whenever the political consultants start to show up in the news, 99 times out of 100, it's about money. Okay? And that's what's happening is America Rising fired some of Cheney's, uh, some, some staffers from their own conservative pack because they were on the down low doing oppo research against Trump. Because remember, half of these people... 90% of the political class wants Donald Trump gone. Mm-hmm. He's killing them. So a lot of them are making a lot of money off of it. There's no question about it. But these people are not allowed in polite society. When people find out you work for Donald Trump, everybody knows that you're a pariah. Okay? So the Koch brothers, who have never liked Trump, they are working 
to uh, they're working to unseat him. They want him gone. As does a lot of the Republican establishment money. As does a lot of the Republican political consulting class. Liz Cheney is going to give them a place to go. She's saying, come with me. We'll give you as much protection as you can. We need everybody in the old establishment working to dismantle this guy and pull him apart. Will they be as successful as the Lincoln Project, for example, when we were in 2020? Probably not because it's a different type of game. And most of these yeah. people, most of these people are not trying to destroy the party the way that we were basically like, let's just light the town on fire, right? It's all rotten. Let's just burn the whole thing down to the core. Most of these people are not of that mindset. They just want to get rid of Trumpism and are hoping beyond hope, in my estimation, that they can bring back the Republican Party, save their titles, save their, their, their money, save their stature, uh, in this party that they, they think that they can resurrect. That's the battle that's engaged. It's a really good question, and it's a really good mm-hmm. observation. The billionaires from the establishment are ready and not afraid to turn on Trump. That includes Rupert Murdoch at Fox. You're seeing Fox's message change dramatically. It includes some of the top political consultants in America Rising, which is one of the largest political uh, conservative political packs in the country. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, dollar to a donut, McConnell World and all of his consultants and all of his gang members are going to throw in with those guys and say, let's gut this guy like a fish and let's do him in as quietly as we can with as little damage to the party because at this point he's declaring war on all of us. Oh, okay. All right. We'll see how that plays out. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All righty. Thank you so much. I think that brings us about to the end. Six o'clock hours upon us, which means nine o'clock Eastern. If you haven't had dinner, go get dinner, guys. Love the conversation. Love your questions. Hope you found this topic good. If you could share this recording uh, when it posts, it would mean a lot to me. I'm looking forward to talking to you guys next Wednesday. Send me your questions. Send me your suggestions for guests, for topics, for ideas. We'll talk again next Wednesday, five o'clock. PM Pacific on Mic Drop.